Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's message is titled, What the Bible Says About Baptism. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. A few years ago, I read a uh, baptism story written by a charismatic pastor that goes like this. He said, uh, as a minister, I conduct many baptism services, and my denomination baptizes in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. One Sunday, my family and I went to a friend's home in the country, and our four children went outside to play with their kids. After a short while, we heard only silence and wondered what the children were up to. Those of you who've been parents, you know what that means. If you can't hear the kids, usually they're up to nothing good. That's a bad sign. Well, we found them behind the barn, our kids and our friends' kids, playing church together. This pastor goes on to say, Our four-year-old daughter, Susan, was conducting her own baptism service. She held a cat over a barrel of water. Trying to be as solemn as her father, she repeated the phrase she has heard many times, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the hole you go. (laughs) It's a cute story and it makes me laugh every time I read it. However, it's also a reminder of the many misconceptions people have about baptism. With our Catalyst membership class coming up in just a couple of weeks and it being a prerequisite for baptism, I thought this would be a good time to uh, answer the question, what does the Bible say about baptism? Uh, Although a quick overview of baptism is provided in the class, I've actually never, and I went back in my files and looked at this, uh, since we started the church, I've actually never done an in-depth message laying out what the scriptures say about baptism. And I kind of was surprised myself. It's not that I've avoided the topic, it just sort of hasn't come up yet. So um, all that to say, I'm hoping we'll be able to answer this very, all of us will be able to answer this very important question by the end of our time together. And I'm hoping we can do it without feeling like the wet cat you see on the screen behind me. Uh, We'll resume our series, Lord Willing, in Philippians, called Outrageous Joy, next week. But today, I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 3 and pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder. If you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you so that we can uh, loan you a copy. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 is 30 years after Matthew 2. Matthew 1 and 2, you might remember, uh, is, is part of the Christmas story and the birth of Christ and what happened the first couple of years of Jesus' life. Well, we skip ahead 30 years and Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, is getting ready to start his earthly ministry. And so, uh, as I read uh, verses 11 to 17, please follow along with me. Uh, John the Baptist has already been ministering here, preparing the way for Jesus. And so John's talking here. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me 
is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff uh, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, the first point I want to uh, make to the, this morning about baptism, I think the starting point we need to begin with is the meaning of baptism. So that's number one in your outline, the meaning of baptism. In this passage where Jesus is baptized, there are actually two types of baptism being talked about. Uh, the first is spirit baptism in verse 11, which takes place immediately after an individual surrenders their life to Jesus Christ. The second type of baptism, which will be the focus of our time together today, is believer's baptism. One of my heroes, the 19th century British bishop, J.C. Ryle, he said it better than I could ever say it uh, when he wrote this in his commentary on Matthew chapter 3. Ryle says, There are few subjects in religion over which greater mistakes have occurred than baptism. There are few which require so much fencing and guarding. I have found this to be true ever since we planted this church. Uh, in the early days of our church, for example, I had to deny membership to a couple whom I was very fond of and really wanted to have them join our church, uh, but they insisted, because of their own church background, that baptism was absolutely necessary for salvation. And they could not reconcile or accept our doctrinal statement, which says it's not necessary for salvation. It's important, but not necessary for salvation. And then, fast forward to just a few weeks ago, there was a gentleman who visited our church, and after the service, um, he spent at least 20 minutes debating with me uh, trying to convince me of the same thing, why baptism was necessary for salvation. And so uh, all that to say, <laughs> it's more relevant than you might think, even though you maybe haven't had conversations with anybody or struggled with this topic. Um, I have, and there, there are others that struggle with it that you may not know of. And so it's imperative, I think, if Jesus is your Savior, it is imperative that you know what you believe about baptism and why you believe it. Yeah, I think it's God's will that every believer be able to open up the scriptures and go, well, right here, and then, and then right here, this is what it says. And certainly, I think every grandparent and parent that professes faith in Christ ought to be able to do that for their children. So it's God's word speaking, not you 
telling them what they should do. And so, back in Matthew chapter 3, a little bit of context here. As I mentioned, John the Baptist is doing his uh, ministry to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. The Lord sent John the Baptist before Jesus started his ministry to preach a message of repentance and uh, a message of, uh, of hope in the Messiah that would come and John baptized. This is not the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, by the way. Different guys. Now, John did this. Uh, he preached a message of repentance, as I said, calling people to get ready for the Messiah who was coming. Matthew chapter 3 shows us that one of the first things Jesus did, though, before he started his earthly ministry, was he went to John the Baptist to get baptized. And notice it says in verse 13, and then he consented. And it says, Jesus went to be baptized. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead to 16. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Now, the English word baptize actually comes from the Greek word, which I think is on your sermon note handout. It's pronounced baptizo. Uh, in the Greek, uh, the Z makes a DZ uh, sound, so like a diphthong. It's baptizo. It means literally to dip in or under, to dye, as in to dye a cloth, uh, to immerse or to submerge. This is an important detail because it makes other methods of baptism, such as sprinkling or pouring, contradictory to the meaning of the term. It would be like saying he washed his clothes in the mud. Or it would be like saying uh, she ate until she was hungry. You go, well, that doesn't, that's a contradiction. And so the technical meaning of the word baptize, baptizo in the Greek text, uh, uh, is the first of many reasons why our church and our network considers immersion the most biblical method of baptism. Now, uh, this raises a question, though. If John, is, John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance for people to get ready for the Messiah to come, the Messiah then goes to John and says, I need you to baptize me. The Messiah doesn't need to repent because he's never sinned, and John's message is all about him coming. Then why does Jesus need to be baptized? I thought you'd never ask. Well, although he didn't have to get baptized, Jesus chose to get baptized in order to, first of all, endorse John's ministry. Uh, secondly, to identify with the sinners that he would eventually save. And thirdly, to set an example for all future believers to follow. So the meaning of of believers' baptism, the meaning of baptism, to immerse, to dip in or under, to submerge. And Jesus set the example. In fact, that's a good segue to number two on your outline, the models for believers' baptism. There are two models that we need to look at. The scriptures call all Christians to be imitators of God by modeling our lives after Jesus Christ. Thus, when we unpack the topic of baptism, it certainly makes sense that we should look at, well, what did Jesus think about baptism? How did he view it? 
What did he say about it? Uh, in other words, if the head of the Christian church thought baptism was important enough that he submit himself to be baptized, then how much more should we? And so in Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus shows us the importance of, and here's letter A, uh, being baptized by immersion. Being baptized by immersion. It says in verse 16 of chapter 3 that Jesus went up from the water in the ESV. He went up from the water. Now please, if you would, make special note of that phrase. Uh, this is important. I need to do some debunking or demything. I'm not sure if that's a word, but uh, opponents of baptism by immersion have tried to use verse 16, along with a smidgen of other verses, to argue for sprinkling and pouring. On the other hand, Protestant evangelicals like us have also used verse 16, along with a glob of verses, to support it, to argue for immersion. Understandably, it's, it's a difficult verse to interpret because our English translations have struggled with how to render it. So, for example, depending on what Bible translation you have, in verse 16, um, uh, some translations say, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Um, another translation, New American Standard, says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Uh, the NIV says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. And then the New Living Translation says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water. So, so it, it leads to a question, is Matthew referring to when Jesus came up out of the water because he was underwater and then he rose back up? Is that what he's referring to? Or... Is Matthew referring to, and some churches, denominations, and scholars believe this, uh, the second option, and that is, was he referring to when Jesus exited the Jordan River and stepped onto the shore? See, some people read this verse that way. He went up out of the water. Oh, that just means that Jesus got out of the river. Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. Here's what I think it means. And I spent hours digging into this and looking at various commentaries in the original text this week um, because that's what pastors and theologians that are geeky like me do. Um, I think this verse is describing, and I'm very confident of this, when Jesus rose up out of the water after being submerged. So going from a horizontal to a vertical position. And here's why. The original text actually says this. I'm going to show you this on the keynote screen behind me. Matthew 3.16 in the ESV. The original text actually reads like this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up. The Greek verb that's used means to rise up. Okay? Then another key word is the preposition from in English. In the Greek, it's the preposition uh, apo, I may have just butchered it because I've forgotten how to do my pronunciations, but uh, apo, from, in the Greek, means to separate from the whole. In other words, it, it, it means to take 
two parts that were once whole and to pull them apart or separate them. In other words, Jesus was a part of the water, but when he rose up from it, the Greek being so very descriptive, much more than English, is actually saying Jesus was no longer a part of the water when he was submerged. The parallel passage in Gospel of Mark describes the same thing. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, in Mark's version of what happened with Jesus' baptism, Mark says this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, Galilee excuse me, and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water. And the Greek text says exactly that. Uh, John chapter 3 also supports Jesus' baptism by immersion. Uh, John chapter 3, I'll just show you the verse on the keynote screen for the sake of time. Uh, This is where Jesus and John the Baptist actually, for a short period of time, their ministry overlaps with one another uh, because John had not yet been put in prison and beheaded yet. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus, John the Baptist, and their disciples went and sought out a place that had lots of water for the purpose of baptizing. So it says in John 3.23, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So if we put our detective hats on and badges to investigate uh, these scenes, like uh, we're doing some CSI here, um, it logically would lead to this question. Why would Jesus and John the Baptist look for a place that had plenty of water if they were only going to sprinkle converts? If that was the case, they, would, they could have just filled a jug of water and taken it with them and gone anywhere. Why did they have to have a lot of water? Okay. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to sound snarky here at all. I'm just trying to let the scriptures speak plainly and point out what I think is obvious. Now, before I move on, uh, I should mention there are rare exceptions in which a believer may not physically be able to be uh, immersed. Uh, For example, if they're in the hospital or a nursing home or wheelchair-bound or have some other debilitating condition. In such cases, I think the Lord certainly is understanding and fine with appropriate adjustments being made. I have seen cases like that where somebody is maybe sprinkled or uh, some other mode is used. Um, But for the most part, if a person is physically able, the preferred biblical method is immersion. Now, if you would turn to Acts chapter 2, the second main major passage we're going to look at is Acts 2, and then in a little bit we're going to look at Romans 6. These would be sort of the big three baptism passages that I think you need to be familiar with. Acts chapter 2. The history of the early church is recorded in Acts 2. It was written, the entire book of Acts was written by the apostle Luke, Dr. Luke. Luke shows us in Acts the importance of being baptized after conversion. That's letter B on your outline. Early church believers were baptized after conversion. Now, I know many of you sitting here uh, would probably go, well, duh, I I know that, but do you know why? 
And can you prove it? Can you show anybody from the Bible? That's how, that's how it was done. Well, I'm going to help you say you can't. Believer's baptism was without a doubt very important in the days of the early church. Uh, in every reference to baptism in Acts that I could find, baptism followed an individual's commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Over and over again throughout Acts, you can do this when you go home today or tonight, just find a search engine like Bible Gateway or blueletterbible.org or, or some site like that and just go to Acts and punch in baptism and look at all the references, baptism or baptized. Here's what you'll find, because it's what I found. Luke writes over and over again throughout the 28 chapters of Acts. They believed, and they were baptized. Next town. They believed, and they were baptized. Next town. They believed, and they were baptized. Over and over and over. The first example of this is right here in Acts chapter 2. Now, unfortunately, this passage is also some controversy that I feel compelled to clear up for you. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at here in Acts 2 is actually the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Pentecost was a large festival uh, that celebrated the end of the grain harvest. And so what that basically means for simplicity's sake here today is that there would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem at the time, so Peter had a captive, large audience. And so the Holy Spirit has come and anointed and filled the apostles and early believers earlier in chapter 2. And now as we pick up in verse 36, Acts 2.36, we'll look at the tail end of Peter's message. So Peter says, Let all... The house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, look back at verse 38, if you would, and I'd like you to notice, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Peter makes a call for an individual response from each person. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So he's individually calling people to make a personal commitment to Christ. So it doesn't matter if your mom and dad did and you don't, uh, that is a problem. It, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian family, if you live near a Christian church. It all comes down to you and the Lord, one-on-one. -on -one. 
Have you received or rejected his son, Jesus? Next, uh, uh, Peter says, do so for the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 38. Now, this this phrase here has caused a lot of trouble. Uh, And again, I understand you guys aren't reading the same blogs and books and websites that I do and following the same people on social media that I do, but this passage is controversial to say the least, and here's why. Um, For the forgiveness of your sins is how most modern Bible translations render this, but it doesn't mean what we think it means. Bear with me. It's a confusing rendering. It's also led some to conclude that if a believer is not baptized soon after their repentance, that that believer is not a believer and not saved. Because baptism, according to some people who view it this way, they think baptism is necessary for salvation. Theologians call this baptismal regeneration. What it means is, the term means is that They think, and this is false teaching, it's not true, but they think baptism causes the regeneration of the heart to be born again. So, it's been my experience that many of the people, I would say the majority of those who believe in baptismal regeneration are also dedicated readers of the King James translation of the Bible. This is because the King James muddies the water even more by translating the verse in this way. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. In fact, the gentleman that was debating me a few weeks ago was a King James fan, had his King James Bible, and I was trying to help him understand why, well, I was trying to explain to him what I'm going to tell you right now. Here's a quick explanation why Acts 2.38 does not teach baptismal regeneration. And I'm going to also address why the King James translation is not as reliable as many think. First, Acts 2.38 cannot require baptism for salvation because this would contradict the rest of the Bible that teaches redemption comes through Repentance and faith alone in Christ alone. Tons of verses saying that. One verse that says, got to be baptized for forgiveness. You can't build doctrine using one verse that contradicts thousands of verses. Well, hundreds, sorry, I didn't mean to exaggerate there. So, the clear repeated message of Jesus and the apostles, if we were to do a cursory overview of all the preaching that Jesus and the apostles did, The recurring theme that they kept on saying is salvation comes through repentance and grace and faith alone in Christ alone. So requiring baptism for salvation would add works or a merit to salvation. It wouldn't be a free gift. So, next... I kind of alluded to this a minute ago. When building a church doctrine, there must be more than just one or two verses that support it. Uh, That's good hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy seminary term for Bible study methods. When 
scholars and theologians build a doctrine, they look for, and sometimes this is called let scripture interpret scripture, they look for themes across various, many, many verses, as opposed to one verse that seems to say one thing. If you try to build a doctrine out of one or two verses, you almost always will end up with something that's false and not what the Lord intended. And so, in the case of baptismal regeneration, there simply isn't enough scripture to support it. Now, the King James translation. The King James translation of the Bible was a groundbreaking translation with many positives at the time it was published in 1611. And here's why. One of the biggest positives is the King James was one of the first mass-published Bibles made available to laymen and women. Because up until that point, I mean, this is hard to imagine, for, you know, what, 1,500 years? The only people that could read the Bible were priests who had been trained in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. It just blows me away, given the access that we have to the Bible today with our apps and the internet and so on and so forth. And so, um, unfortunately, the King James was also a heavily biased translation. Um, As the head of the Church of England, King James I did not want the first public Bible translation to overturn long-established traditions that were unbiblical. One of those was infant baptism by sprinkling. They had been doing that for a while, and he did not want a literal, honest, objective translation of the scriptures from the original manuscripts to overturn and cause more unrest. There already was a lot of unrest, and... um, Uh, In the Church of England at the time, there already were denominations breaking off that were seeing um, uh, the churches uh, drift from solid doctrine, and the Church of England at that time was basically a state-run church. The king was the head of the church. The king was also the head of the government, okay? So you could see what kind of problems that would create. Once again, the controversy, though, is rooted in how to best render the original text. So let me show you the ESV and explain something real quick here for Acts 2.38. The ESV renders it, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For is the preposition ace in the Greek. It means, among other things, because of, or on the basis of. So when we look at all the verses that have to do with redemption through repentance and faith and grace alone and Christ alone, and we know that cannot be overturned because of all the overwhelming evidence of that, and we look at here's one verse in Acts 2.38 that seems to suggest baptism is necessary for forgiveness, we need to figure out what does Peter actually mean in here? Well, reliable, godly, evangelical Greek scholars have found that ace, for, means on the basis of. So, what's Peter trying to say? He's trying to say, be baptized on the basis of the forgiveness you've already received. 
Here's a little more evidence. Interestingly, if you look at the rest of Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, he mentions nothing else about baptism. This is the only place. In Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 5, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching, he does not mention baptism. He does preach the gospel. So, let me, again, because I want to be as clear as I can, and I worked extra hard this week to try and be clear because I know this is a lot of information. Here's some conclusions that I think we can draw from the early church about baptism. Um, Small number one on your outline, baptism always followed conversion. It always followed conversion. It always followed an individual's commitment to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, because a lot of Americans grow up in either part of or they're exposed to some mainline denominational church, a vast majority of Americans, I have found, have been baptized either as infants or as young children before they were even close to being aware of their sin problem or even close to being able to repent of any sin. So some hear the true gospel, though, later in life, and they express repentance and faith alone in Christ alone for their salvation. And when this happens, I counsel them to get their baptism on the right side of their salvation experience, like you see there on this lifeline on the slide. So there's a physical birth that everyone experiences, and then some experience a spiritual birth the day that you're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And what I tell people who maybe grew up or were exposed to a mainline denominational church is that you need to get your baptism on the right side. You need to get it following your conversion. Next, the second, number two, small two, conclusion we can draw from Acts. Baptism was performed by church leaders. There are no examples that I am aware of in God's word of believers baptizing themselves or one member baptizing another or, say, a father baptizing his family. Um, The repeated pattern in the scriptures is the pastors and elders do the baptizing. Um, I think this is because church leaders were needed to authenticate the testimony of the believer that wants to be baptized And I think it's also because church leaders were needed to certify the baptism, uh, to give some credibility to it, okay? And so church leaders were trusted to vet those people to make sure they really knew Christ, that they weren't just wanting to get baptized for good luck or because mom and dad told them to or something like that. It was hot outside, seemed like a good idea, on and on. Number three, small number three. The third conclusion we can draw from Acts is that baptism was done in the presence of witnesses. It was done in the presence of witnesses. <laughs> Quick story for you. Um, this, is a, this is a funny baptism story. It's true, too. It's going to sound hard to believe, but it actually happened. Back when I was in seminary, I served as an intern at a church in Dallas, Texas. One day, the other interns and I were asked to call a list of church members who still needed to be baptized. They had not been baptized yet, according to our church records. And so we were to sign them up for a baptism service that was coming in a few weeks. And so I'm making calls, and I get one lady on the phone who spoke to me, and 
And when I asked her um, about her conversion experience and when did she receive Christ, and you know, it was a, it was a few months ago after hearing the pastor's sermon at your church, and and I asked her, well, have you have you gotten baptized yet? And she said, um, sure, I actually did just the other day. I was in the shower and I just raised my hand and I said, I baptized myself in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm I'm sitting there on the phone going, hmm. Uh, 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 I don't know what to do. You know? <laughs> I need a Bible verse. You know, like, I don't know. Uh, well, thank you for your time and have a nice day. <laughs> I was so, I was at such a consternated state because I knew in my spirit that is not right. But I. I was only in my first or second semester of seminary and I didn't know how to prove she was not right. You know, I just didn't know what to do with that. And so uh, that just stuck with me. And I, I mean, oh man, there definitely are some, you know, was I dreaming she actually said that? You know, she thought she could just baptize herself? So anyway, it was done in the presence of witnesses and I hope there were no witnesses in the shower that day. <laughs> go there. So this brings us to our big idea, and I intentionally held off on revealing it because I wanted to build up to this point. Um, Baptism, after conversion, is necessary for obedience, but not for salvation. That's the big idea I want you to remember about baptism. Baptism after conversion is necessary for obedience, but not for salvation. It it means to immerse or to dip under. Jesus in the early church modeled it for us. It follows conversion, was performed by church leaders, and done in the presence of witnesses. Nowhere do the scriptures mention anything magical or mystical about baptism, or the Lord's Supper, for that matter. Uh, But instead, both were intended to be ordinances that help the church remember and celebrate the gospel. And by the way, I forgot to mention regarding witnesses, I think there are two reasons why baptism was always done in the presence of witnesses. Um, The first is is it's so the believer could publicly testify about their conversion experience. And then also, the second reason would be so the church could celebrate the commitment. Okay, so that's, that's why it was never done in private. It was done in public. There were other believers around. Okay, um... Next, if you would turn to Romans chapter 6, the last passage we're going to look at today, of the big three on baptism, Romans 6. So the first was Matthew 3, Jesus' baptism, and then Acts 2, Peter preaching at Pentecost, and now Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I'm going to read verses uh, 3 through 4. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized unto his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised by excuse me, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Here's number three in your outline. Uh, the third truth about baptism is that Baptism, it's a mark, the mark of believer's baptism. I want to talk about that for a minute. The mark of believer's baptism. Romans 6 provides another reason why immersion is preferred 
as a method for baptism. Not only is baptism a public profession of the believer's faith in Jesus Christ, it also was intended to be a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Paul is saying here. So leaning back into the water symbolizes Christ's death. The brief moment spent under the water symbolizes his burial. And then coming back up out of the water to a vertical position symbolizes his resurrection. Thus, every time a new believer gets baptized, we reenact the gospel. Dying, buried, resurrected. Here's a biblical definition. You know I like definitions. So uh, a biblical definition for baptism, I want to encourage you to write down. I worked on this a lot this week to try and tighten it down, tighten it down, tighten it down, and get as succinct and simple as I could. In believers' baptism, Christ's followers publicly proclaim their allegiance to Jesus and publicly illustrate his death, burial, and resurrection. So if I was to take everything that we're looking at today and to crunch it all down into one sentence, one definition, it'd be this. In believers' baptism, Christ's followers publicly proclaim their allegiance to Jesus and publicly illustrate his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism, you probably have heard this before, is an outward expression of an inward change. So not only does baptism reenact the gospel, it also reenacts the gospel in the believer's own life. That's also what Paul is saying here. In Romans 6, 4, Paul is saying that going down into the water represents the death of the old self with its rebellion and selfishness and unbelief. And then coming back up out of the water symbolizes the new self being raised to walk in newness of life. Now, um, baptism again, it's Christ followers publicly proclaiming their allegiance to Jesus and publicly illustrating his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, Number four, I'm going to touch on this quickly, the mandate for believers' baptism. I won't have you turn to uh, the scriptures because I'm running out of time here, but the mandate for believers' baptism. I'll just touch on this quickly. Because God's intentions for us are good, anything he asks us to do is good, And because anything he asks us to do is good, we should want to do it. And so uh, here's uh, letter A under number four. Baptism was commanded by Jesus himself in the Great Commission. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of it. It's Matthew 28, verse 19. In Matthew 28, Jesus had been resurrected for more than a month. He used that time to do some extra ministry. And just before he ascended to heaven... To reunite with his father, the Lord gave the disciples and us some final marching orders. And so in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, A little bit of, I hope this is interesting to you. It took me a few years to figure this out, but um, maybe this will impress somebody at a party that you go to someday. Um, 
the combination of Matthew 28, Great Commission, and Romans 6 is what most evangelical ministers recite while baptizing someone. So, for, and I do this, this is how I was taught to do it. Um, before um, immersing someone, I, I say, I baptize you today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Buried with Christ in baptism, Romans 6. Raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. So that's where the script, for lack of a better word, comes from. Next, uh, letter B, it was also commanded by the apostles too. We already saw this in Acts 2.38, uh, but it also throughout the book of Acts, the apostles baptized those who expressed repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So, it's mandated by Jesus himself and by the apostles too. Okay, um, I have a spot on the back of your handout, uh, a little header that says frequently asked questions. I was hoping to cover five or six of the most popular questions I get on baptism so it would be captured on recording and, and I would be able to sort of front load or get ahead and answer some for you, but unfortunately, I only have time to answer a couple, so I'm going to do two, and then I'll answer the rest in the Catalyst uh, membership class. So here's the first one. Um, survey says, <laughs> I feel like doing Family Feud or something, do I have to go through the membership class in order to be baptized? Yes. If you take the class on Sunday, June 2nd, not only will you be entered into a lottery for half a million dollars um, and given many indulgences, uh, you're not obligated to become a member if you take the class. The class is really designed to sort of front load who we are as a church and to give you the opportunity to prayerfully decide, do I want to get married to Vanguard? Do I want to commit to Vanguard? Most people choose to. Every now and then, there's somebody who says, eh, it's not for me. I see what you guys believe here, and I, I, I can't work with that. And that's okay. Um, I know there are many churches who baptize people spontaneously or regardless of membership. I'm aware of that. I used to work at some um, in a couple different places in the country. And I even baptized some people early in my ministry that... Um, spontaneously and did not become members. My views changed on this. Uh, I think baptizing people spontaneously and not tying it to membership, although it's not unbiblical, I do think it's unwise. I think it's unwise to do. Honestly, I don't have any scripture verses to support my preference to only baptize potential members. I'll be honest with you. It's simply a wisdom principle and a personal conviction. And that's because if I'm going to give an account before the Lord for everything I teach, and I think I'll give an account for who I baptize, I feel much more comfortable baptizing someone who has heard the gospel clearly explained, learned what it means to follow Christ, heard the teaching on baptism so they know what it means, it's not a good luck charm, doesn't save you, there's nothing mystical about it, and they've committed to go through our membership class. As I alluded to a minute ago, early in my ministry, I baptized too many people who didn't understand the commitment they were making, 
were caught up in an emotional decision and then demonstrated no fruits of repentance and even left the church. And when I saw that happen, it really troubled me because I thought, man, that guy, that girl, that guy, that guy, their girl, that I baptized them. They answered the questions, but they're not even going to church anymore, and they went back to their sinful life. What, what can I do about that? I, I struggle with that. Am I going to be, is the Lord going to ask me about that? Why did you baptize them, Carrie? And so, again, I think I'm going to give an account. I want to make sure people know what they're doing. Okay, if you want to ask me more about that later, you can. Second question survey says, um, how old should my child be before getting baptized? My view on this has evolved a little bit too over time as a dad and as a pastor and working with families and stuff. First of all, it's extremely important, parents and grandparents, that your child understand the gospel and that they express repentance and faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. Secondly, it's also extremely important that they show some signs of walking with the Lord. There's a huge difference. And if you've, hopefully you've picked up on this in my preaching over the last couple of years. Not every conversion, it's not every profession is a conversion. There will always be more people that profess faith than actually have faith in Christ. And so it's very important to see whether or not your child is taking any spiritual initiative, like to read their Bible or they want to go to church or something like that. If they said the sinner's prayer, but you have to drag them to church every week and they're kicking and screaming, I think you need to ask some questions there. Because if the Spirit has indwelled them, the Spirit wants to go to church and worship the Lord. Okay? Now, this is difficult, and I just need to say this honestly, even as a parent. It's difficult for parents to discern whether their children are saved because we're often aware of our own bias towards our kids when it comes to their spiritual condition. We often want to, we're willing to stretch the gospel to, to kind of make exceptions for our kids that we wouldn't make for anybody else. And so we need to be aware of that. We want our kids to be saved and baptized, but we got to think biblically here. It would be worse to baptize an unbelieving child and give them some false assurance regarding their salvation. It'd be worse. And because, we've got to apply our doctrine here, because baptism doesn't save them, there's no need to rush it to get them baptized to make yourself feel better or to make them feel better. We've got to apply the doctrine here. Necessary for obedience, but not for salvation. And so, another thing to be aware of, parents, and again, I'm speaking as a dad and a pastor here, because of the sin nature that kids inherit from their parents, and because kids desire to please their parents, there are many children who will say the sinner's prayer and agree to get baptized in an early age just because mom and dad said so. You have to discern that too. It needs to be their decision. It needs to be something they want to do, not something that you told them to do, because the Lord sees straight through that. And so, parents, make sure the decision to get baptized is your child's decision instead of your decision so you can feel better. The bottom line is that, in my experience, 
and I took some child psychology classes when I was in my undergraduate program. I've gotten biblical counseling training. I've raised kids. I've helped a lot of, counseled a lot of kids and families. Here's what I have noticed. The earliest I think most children can cognitively, emotionally, and spiritually understand what it means to follow Christ would be 8 to 10 years old. Just developmentally, being able to understand the abstract concepts of I'm a sinner separated from God and Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and heaven and all that. I mean, to actually understand it and its impact, I would say 8 to 10. I think it's even wiser to wait a little longer than that to say 12 or 13 so that it can be their decision They're old enough to understand what they're doing, and they're old enough to remember doing it. One of the sad things I've seen with some parents that have kind of rushed their kids to get baptized is, I don't think the kids are going to remember doing it, other than seeing pictures. And so this is why we're opening up the Catalyst class for teenagers to be able to take that next step in their walk with the Lord. Uh, The content that's taught, it's easily understandable for ages 13 on up. Again, I'll answer more questions about baptism in the Catalyst class, or you can talk to me after the service. Okay, two quick applications, and then we'll be done. Two quick applications. Number one, root your beliefs about baptism in Scripture instead of tradition. Root your beliefs about baptism in Scripture instead of tradition. I have had numerous discussions with people coming from mainline denominations over the years that end up criticizing the biblical evidence I give them for believers' baptism that I just shared with you. But what I always find interesting is that they bring no scripture to the discussion on their side. They just don't like what the Bible says. And so when I ask them, okay, you baptize an infant, do you have any verses that you can show me? Uh, 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 uh. Okay, you got one verse, good. Do you have any more? Because I've got 52. (laughs) What, and what it really reveals, I think, is the deeper problem of tradition being the final authority instead of God's word. That's the root issue. Number two, application. If necessary, get your baptism on the right side of your conversion. This is something that Maya and I both had to do when we had surrendered our lives to Christ as uh, young adults. Um, In college, she was baptized as a child in the Lutheran church she grew up in. I was baptized at uh, age 12 in in a Methodist church that my family and I were attending at the time. Um, After we both heard the biblical teaching on believer's baptism, we realized we needed to get our baptism on the right side of our conversion experience. And so we got baptized together uh, as young marrieds in a Sunday night service at the uh, evangelical church that we were attending together. We didn't do it to rebel against our parents. Instead, we did it to please the Lord, because pleasing him was the only thing that mattered. Uh, We tried to explain it to our parents and why we were doing it. They weren't thrilled, but, you know, we just tried to say, look, the Bible says this, and we've given our lives to Christ, and we need to be obedient to the Lord. So, root your beliefs about baptism in Scripture instead of tradition, and if necessary, get your baptism on the right side of your conversion. Finally, um, several years ago, I read a story about a man on a missions trip to East Malaysia. And while serving there, he attended a baptism service being held at a small church. 
During the service, he saw a teenage girl get baptized, and at the same time noticed over on the side of the, uh, the gathering room against the wall some beat-up luggage, a suitcase. And so uh, after the service, the missionary went to the pastor, and he said, uh, um, who, who, who's the luggage belong to? What, what is the, what? That seems odd to bring that to church. And the pastor pointed out the teenage girl who had just been baptized, and he said, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never come home again. So she brought her luggage. Let's be the kind of church that takes baptism as literally and seriously as she did. Baptism after conversion is necessary for obedience, but not for salvation. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, I, I recognize even myself, this is a lot of content to digest, and there were two to three difficult issue, translation issues that I had to uh, try to tackle in a, in a message uh, and make it understandable. And so, Lord, I just, I need your help. Please, Lord, would you just, by your spirit, help what was communicated today from your word, the truths of scripture about salvation, about forgiveness, and about baptism. Would you just help it to make sense in the minds and hearts of all of us today, and would you help it to stick? Would you, would you enable us, Lord, to be able to open up the scriptures and to explain baptism to our children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, or maybe a new believer that you've put in our lives? And Lord, we thank you for creating baptism as a way to publicly testify about our faith in Christ, but also to, um, to give us something to celebrate as a church. It's a, like the Lord's Supper, it's a reenactment of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, that in your infinite wisdom and foresight, you knew we would need that as a church today to encourage us and to remind us of what your son did. Father, I just also want to pray for anyone here today that might need to uh, receive Christ, that you would reveal Jesus to them, bring them to faith in Christ through repentance and faith and grace alone and Christ alone. I also want to pray, Lord, for those who uh, might need to get their baptism on the right side of their conversion experience. I know from many people I've counseled over the years, Lord, that there are some folks that it could mean uh, there could be ramifications with the family, extended family, parents, grandparents. There are some parents and grandparents and relatives, unfortunately, that would see getting baptized by immersion after conversion as a betrayal of their infant baptism. And I, I just ask, please, that you would give them the boldness, the courage to trust you with that. And that, uh, Lord, you re would redeem that for good. Uh, again, we love you and we thank you for your word the timeless truth it provides. And we thank you for your spirit that helps us understand it. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.